Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, David Seberg, Brian Kelly, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, the crypto crush continues. Bitcoin breaking below 6,000 before hovering at those levels, and the move has the whole crypto universe in a frenzy. The former CEO of PayPal, Bill Harris, who previously called Bitcoin a scam, saying it's about to get a lot worse, he will be here. Plus, the Tesla saga continues. CEO Elon Musk reportedly going rogue as his company's board is scrambling to keep up. But are they doing enough? But first, we start off with retail at record highs. And the already hot retail trade is getting even hotter as the market steps back from a four-day losing streak. Earnings helping to boost some of the biggest names. And check out these moves in the past month. Macy's up 15%. That stock reports earnings tomorrow morning. Tapestry up 15%. Most of that moved today. Kohl's and Michael Kors, JCPenney, all up double digits. So do you keep betting on the consumer? Is this a good sign for the rest of the market? Pete Nigerian. I think it is a good sign. And I think the higher spending we're seeing from the consumer and the GDP around that 4% level, a little bit above that, but also even Home Depot. If you look at through those numbers, they're pretty spectacular numbers. Now, I know the stock movement is a little bit different in the reaction of some of the numbers that came out later after the call, but... Look at those numbers. Online was up 26%. I mean, across the board, when you look at the what they were able to do, and now we're going to get into actual retail. I mean, the real retail, not just the home builder or something involved in that. I think it's going to be pretty impressive because people are outspending. And I think there's a confidence level right now where you're going to see these retailers absolutely, and the competition level, by the way, with the Amazons of the world has really stepped up. I mean, look at where Kroger is right now after being put away for debt a year ago. Look where Target is after being put away dead for about a year and a half ago. A lot of these names have competed in a space that everybody said they wouldn't be able to compete in, the online world, and they're doing it. Will the earnings be enough, though? I mean, after we see these big gains that we just showed everybody at the top of the show, yeah. will the earnings be enough uh, to keep I think these gains? Home Depot's price action today tells you that there's a lot of good news in a lot of these stocks. When you think of some of the biggest retailers, we know that Amazon makes new all-time high, all highs every day. Costco is a, uh, an all-time high. Target is on its way back to an all-time high. Walmart has been the big laggard here. Uh, you know, so to me, I think Walmart has the potential to break out and maybe make up, play a little catch-up to some of those. But listen. Retail's got this seasonal strength. They got back to school and they have in the holiday. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem with the holiday season. They have very, very tough compares. Last year was about as bad as it could be. So we are talking about the retail wreck all summer into the fall. Very different, uh, difficult compares. So they may have some, some room to run. The XRT is breaking out. It's been consolidating over the last month. As far as what it means for the broad market, I just don't think the XRT is big enough to drag up the market when it seems like a lot of sectors... Uh, uh, industrials, well, yeah. financial, it is, it is semiconductors of all stocks. I mean, it is if it's a signal that the consumer here in the U.S. is still doing okay. I mean, we know that the consumer is a huge portion of the economy, upwards of 70% of it. If the American consumer is still spending money, then you're okay with the economy, which then means earnings should be okay. And all the macro concerns that I get worried about every single day may not be impacting the consumer yet. So that's a positive. We had Carter Worth on last night talking about the breakouts in these. Look at Nordstrom. That was a breakout there. So there's definitely some momentum behind this. And in this particular market, that's what you want to see. So let's call it a, a glimmer of hope out there. Yeah, but I think to Dan's point, you don't just chase everything randomly. I mean, look at, you want to look at things specifically, like you look at discounters. Discounters, I think, are going to continue to win. I think that finding brand at a value or, or you know, uh, product at value, like a Burlington resource, a Burlington, uh, the URL, Burlington Co-Factory, oh, yeah. uh, TJ Maxx. These are names that have, have continued to show that they have a great business model, and that's where investors want to lean. They also want to lean on, on, on companies that are, are investing in that direct-to-consumer model. So a Nike is a perfect example. And I haven't been the biggest bull on Nike. I favor Adidas, uh, Adidas over Nike. But I would say Nike's done a really good job in investing to that direct-to-consumer sort of channel. 
and it's going to be a success for them. So I look at it and say you have to be very careful and, and choose to kind of pick your poison a little bit here. I think Kohl's could turn around story, today. but I think Walmart. They all broke out. Why do I, think, I need to be I careful? Walmart, but I think a Walmart, you've got to be very careful. The spend is picking up there. We've talked about it before on the show. 91 bucks a share. They're reporting on Thursday. Be very cautious going into earnings there. Although it's a laggard, I would say to you for good reason because people are underestimating how much this. You know, you brought up Nike, and I, I agree with you. And I think Nike's one of these that a lot of people looked at it and they said North America's down, so we're worried, and they suddenly got all freaked out. The reality is the growth that they're seeing internationally now. A lot of that could change over time because we all know about how the dollars work and everything else. It could be possibly headwinds in front of them, but. That's where the growth has been, and they've absolutely delivered when you're talking about China or the rest of the world. They have been killing it. I also think I just bought Under Armour just the other day, and part of the reason is we had that insider buying, buying probably a little over a month ago. The president actually bought some significant amount of shares. I love to see that. I mean, it gives me that Jamie Dimon type of moment where you like to see somebody committing into their own stock and buying their stock when they think it's oversold. Yeah. And I still think that there's upside to Under Armour. I don't love it. I think it's a good stock. I still think it trades at a very high valuation. So I'd prefer Nike over it. But I think Under Armour does have a little bit of room to the upside. And it's worth noting that Under Armour sales are more geared towards North America as yes, opposed right. to international yep. like, like a Nike. Absolutely. In these earnings reports, though, are we going to start hearing whiffs of the impact of tariffs on prices? Are we going to start hearing about the trucking shortage well, impacting costs? I mean, if we're in an environment where retailers are facing rising costs on many fronts, the consumers might see rising prices. Is this sort of the cocktail well, that takes the sector I mean, down? that's what you have to worry about. But so far, what we've seen is it hasn't impacted the consumer whatsoever. So as long as the consumer has enough money to make to pay that increase well then we're fine if those margins start to compress and the consumer goes you know what i'm not going to buy the kung fu the gi joe with the kung fu grip for christmas then you got a problem but i'd look more to the north american as we've been talking about maybe something like a might macy's yeah but you guys have been tracking this right so we've seen what wage increases have been over the course of the year since we had the tax cut late last year we've seen what inflation is and on the on the net it's not a wage increase. I mean, you know, for okay. all intents and purposes. So then you throw on this rising dollar, trade tensions, like you just said, Mel, this is going to find its way into Walmart's prices. Trucking or target costs. Price, Trucking all costs are going so, to be So, I mean, th I mean, this is the potential yeah. headwind that we have going as long Here's as we why have. Home Depot cited that today in their earnings release. They, they talked about margins. They talked about tariffs and, and the impact on transportation costs and, and fuel. They cited that. People thought they were maybe being very conservative, and, and that may be the case. But the reality is they're prepping for that. There's no reason. There's, there's an absolute reason why they, they said that, and that's to really preface the fact that they believe that that may be an impact going forward. Fifteen percent price increases on yeah. laundry, on washing machines at Home Depot, and that led to lower unit sales. Yeah. This might be the beginning. Will it get worse? It, it, it could be, and yes, that, that potentially could get worse. Real quick on Walmart, just for one second. When you look at Walmart versus Target, let's always remember this. 50% of what Walmart's revenue come from, from what category? Groceries. Groceries. And why is that bad? There are no margins there. Yeah. There's none. So when everybody always wants to lump in Target with Walmart, that's the difference. And that's where I think margin contraction really does hurt somebody like Walmart. I think Target actually still sits on this great ability to have the five different segments. And because of that, they can lean on some of these different segments in times where there's other areas that are getting beat up. All right. Well, while things started to look up today for the market, a former bolus sounding the alarm now. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says a correction is imminent. He joins us now on set. Mike, good to see you. Thanks, Melissa. Uh, what's going to be the trigger for this correction? So, look, you never really know what the trigger is going to be. Let me just set the stage, though. Clearly, I mean, this year has not gone like most people thought it would go in January. Um, and we've seen derating across the various markets with the exception of two sectors, technology and then consumer discretionary, which you all were just talking about. 
And we think that those sectors are ripe to, you know, have a correction in, in their rating in terms of their multiples, okay? And we've already seen some fundamental disappointments. In fact, we made a call to downgrade tech in early July. We weren't expecting Facebook to miss or Netflix to miss, but that happened and we saw their deterioration. So part of that's already happening within, within tech. I think consumer discretionary could be next. Um, but the catalyst I'm really worried about in the near term is liquidity, okay? We're seeing li liquidity has been the problem all year that we've been talking about, meaning financial conditions are tightening a lot more than people appreciate. And I'm not talking about just rates going up. I'm talking about balance sheet reduction at the Fed. The BOJ is not buying as many bonds now. And what's happening is the market is going after various, the weakest links, right? We're seeing it across the board. And crypto today, by the way, is a warning shot. Crypto breaking down to new lows, to me, is just like it was in January. That's the early leading indicator that liquidity is getting worse. Obviously, what's going on in emerging markets and what's going on in some of these geopolitical concerns, that's just feeding into this. So I'm very concerned about just a liquidity shock. You get a, some sort of a financial shock, and it, it'll be over quickly, but it could, it could be quick. And this is a time of the year this happens, so just be aware of that. Is that, is that more to do with the, the ratings agencies maybe downgrading the debt of companies that, that can't sort of like keep up with the debt service as rates move higher? So you look at some of these bigger companies as conglomerates that are borrowing at whatever rates, all of a sudden they get downgraded to, to non-investment grade and you've got a purge essentially of, of those assets. I mean, you can't have certain managers buying those assets under certain circumstances. So is that what you're sort of leading into? Is a little bit of a, a purge based on some maybe downgrading a debt or some other structures from that perspective? Absolutely plays into it. So if you think, if we do a survey of our, of our you know, corporate clients, and, and basically our survey is showing that there are two things that corporations are now worrying about. One is credit conditions, right? So they're seeing yeah. that. The second one is advanced bookings, okay? Uh, Dan, you talked earlier about semiconductors. I mean, that's the tip of the spear for advanced bookings, not just for semiconductors, but the entire economy. So we think there's going to be a deceleration in business sentiment. Okay, and part of that is, is related to specifically credit conditions. Yeah. So why do you like financials then? Well, financials is sort of a, to be honest with you, it's a stale rating that kind of lingered. We should have probably downgraded it in February, March. We didn't. But then in July, when we saw how much it already derated, that was not the time to do that. So we think there are plenty of sectors that have already derated. Financials is one of them. 20% derating on PE, industrials derated significantly, energy derated significantly, a lot of other sectors derated significantly, including defensives, which is why we upgraded those in June, which has actually worked quite well. Mike, does this remind you right now in mid-August of mid-August 2015, a lot of the similar sort of investor complacency, we had a weakening Chinese currency, you know, there's a lot of similar similarities yeah. in my mind. I mean, and the S&P was at an all-time high at that point. There are some similarities, although you don't have a commodity collapse, and I don't think China, China is going into a hard landing, okay, so they're very different. I think this is 1998. I think this is very similar to 1998. You have tech leadership, it's very narrow. Okay, you have real disruption in the Asian and emerging markets. Currency volatility is exploding the tech now. Today is not the same as, as back then, though. Well, in terms of its in terms of its composition, in terms of its contribution to the S and P 500, it absolutely is. It's not as extreme as it was in '99, but in '98. I mean, in terms of the, the bubble same. valuations that we saw back then. I mean, but not '98. '98 okay. was not. We weren't quite into the bub, full okay. bubble yet. That was really '99. And so, look, I don't anticipate a long-term capital. Let's be clear. I'm not saying that, but I do think the risk of a financial accident is elevated right now. And, and it's not like we're not seeing some signs of that around the world. It's not like everything is doing well. And oh, by the way, just to name a few, a few groups, autos, banks, home builders, okay, transports. These are early cycle stocks. They've already told you they expect a deceleration. There's just two groups that are holding out there as if they're not economically sensitive, tech and consumer discretionary. And they are. They're very, they're very economically sensitive.
So, Mike, let me, let me take the other side of that and say, okay, great, liquidity is the issue. All it takes is the Fed to say, you know what, we're not going to raise one more time. BOJ comes in, injects liquidity, and it's all over. Does that change the, the calculus? 100%. So I think the chance of the Fed backing off, given what's going on now, given what's going on with the markets, is zero. Okay, And they shouldn't back off. Okay, However, if we get the correction I'm potentially anticipating here, Okay, which is somewhat speculative, but I think the risk of it is greater. I think they absolutely will react to that. And we would get bullish quickly. Okay? That's our call. We think there's risk here. You get a shock, and the market will get what it wants. The market wants the Fed to back off. They've been begging for that all year by shocking various asset classes. But the Fed can't back off. Data's too good unless we get an accident, and then they can back off. So we'll see how it plays out. A lot of ifs there, but that's the way I see it right now. Mike, thanks. Good Thank to see you. you. Mike Good Wilson, you. Morgan Stanley. What do you think? Tip of the spear. I mean, he said uh, the semiconductors. And I think it's really important to remember that the largest semiconductor by market cap globally, Intel, is down 16% from its multi-year highs, its 52-week highs made in June. Micron, a darling of the semiconductor space, its perennial value trap is down 20% at key support. We have NVIDIA coming on Thursday. That company, that stock is up 1,000% yep. in three years. If you lose that one from a sentiment standpoint, I think the semis are leading in. We'll talk much more about the semis later on. What did you do today, Pete? Well, I got an opportunity. Uh, yesterday I bought uh, the uh, EA, and I thought that was a good buy just based upon where that it was had fallen down to. It was my pitch last night. I bought some snap calls today, and I also added to I already own uh, Microsoft. I added some calls in there today. I think Microsoft right now looks like a breakout, and whenever I see a breakout like that, I look 10% higher. I think it goes to over 120 bucks a share. All right, coming up, the Tesla saga continues as Elon Musk tries to convince the street the road to going private will be a smooth one. But can you trust Musk? We'll separate facts from fiction. Plus, the former CEO of PayPal has been calling Bitcoin a scam, and this recent sell-off has him fired up, and now he's saying it's headed straight to zero. Bill Harris will be here to make his case. And later, chip stocks attempting to make a comeback as they lag behind the rest of the tech sector. Top technician will be here to tell us the one name he thinks is about to break out. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. More details slowly coming out about Elon Musk's plan to take Tesla private. But it's hard to separate the fact from fiction about what is really going on at the company. So for that, we turn to Phil LeBeau to do the heavy lifting from Miami. Hi, Phil. Hi, Melissa. As we see Elon Musk now hooking up with a couple of advisory firms, Silver Lake, as well as Goldman Sachs, as well as the Tesla Board of Advisors, uh, Board of Directors now coming up with a special committee that will look into uh, going private separately. It's a couple of questions that have come up repeatedly over the last week, and we thought we'd straighten out what's actually happening versus what people believe. First of all, is there a firm proposal for Tesla to go private? No. The truth is that Elon Musk said this in a tweet and that he thinks it could possibly happen. He believed that there was secured funding, as he understood it, from the uh, Saudi Sovereign Fund, but there is no formal proposal. The second question that comes up a lot, Elon Musk saying yesterday, well, look, 60, 60% or 66% of the shareholders will likely buy in at a 420 point, and so we don't have to pay out those investors. In other words, two-thirds of the Tesla investors will stay with the company when it goes private. We don't know that. We're not sure where Elon Musk got that statistic. So the truth of the matter is that's an estimate, pure estimate from Elon Musk at this point. Will Tesla be a better run company if it is private? There's no way to know. Elon Musk is the greatest asset at this company. He's also the greatest distraction. 
Will he be less of a distraction because the company is private and he doesn't have to deal with the, the shorts on social media? You would think so, but you never know for sure with Elon Musk. And then finally, Tesla will allow Saudis or another firm to become the biggest shareholder. Remember, Elon Musk owns 20% of the Tesla shares. Would he let somebody else come in and own 25%, 30%? You would think not, but again, at this point, we don't know because, in fact, we don't have a concrete proposal at this point. And guys, we may not have one for several weeks, if not a couple of months. That means we can talk about Tesla for several weeks and maybe a couple months. <laughs> Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau joining us from Miami uh, with the latest here. Uh, there is so much here to unravel with a this story. A rich tapestry, if you will. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Well, that, but here's the thing. Like, to going whether it should be private, should be public, it probably shouldn't have been public in the beginning. I mean, I've thought of this as a venture capital type investment. You're betting on the big picture of Elon Musk, and then the stock price reflects what he's doing every single day. So car company, solar company, and then decarbonizing electric grid, that's the big picture here. That's why you own Tesla. Problem is, now they put a 420 cap on it. So as a trader, it's not that interesting to me. I want to know what the downside could be here. I mean, let's say there is no, let's say there is no proposal here, but all of a sudden Elon Musk faces an SEC investigation, yeah. and the board potentially could be in the crosshairs in terms of scrutiny and, and how they respond. They formed this special committee, and ISS, the Shareholder Proxy Advisory Service, has said that one of those three independent board members, not actually independent because he was the former CFO of Solar City. This is a special committee that was put together to evaluate this going private proposal. Well, I think it could hurt the potential of a deal happening because of the, the over, overhang from that. I mean, you know, deals don't get done when you have these massive legal overhangs. So we're not going to know either. I mean, listen, the, the whole thing seems like an absolute mess to me. I think BK is correct. If you own this thing, you sell the 420 calls all day against it, long dated, you know, because there really is a top. And then your point about if a deal doesn't get done, how what how how much are banks going to want to lend to these guys? Oh, we know right. they're going to actually, they're going to have to do the capital raise of all capital raises to put the shorts to bed. Well, At that point, that's going to be massively diluted. How do they, they're going to have to raise capital in the fourth quarter, undoubtedly. So the question is, is the debt market going to be there in a go private sort of scenario where there's the go private sort of like, you know, marquee out there, the question mark, I don't think the debt market's there. So I think it's going to be more difficult for them to, to, to raise capital under those circumstances. Secondly, I think that a private company, Elon Musk, yeah, it's better for Elon Musk. He's less scrutinized. I think the company is worse off having it uh, you know, shareholders, if you will, in a private scenario are worse off given the fact that there is going to be less scrutiny on him under a private regime. Well, and I would expect that they're looking at the private side of it in terms of they don't have to deal with all of the headaches that he has to deal with and the frustrations yeah. that we've all seen over all these earnings calls where we've seen some of the frustration. He goes sure. after the analysts, all the rest of that. And I would assume that that's why over the last couple of years he's been talking about, hey, I'm going to bring this thing or we should bring this thing private. But I think the really interesting aspect of this is you bring up the idea of selling the 420 calls. There's spreads that a person can do out there, and I've seen more and more have. of this. I'm one of them yeah. who decided, you know what? Whether he can get this or not, at least I know a risk-reward. I know exactly what my risk is. It's what money I've put out there to buy that call spread. That's as much as I can lose. So if it goes to 200, like a lot of people say, hey, this thing could really drop out of bed, you can only lose what you put out there. I think that's the one approach that you can have in a scenario like this because, of course, the SEC issue, that could be something that would maybe scare off any of these types of potential bidders that are out there, but maybe not. So we'll see how that plays out. It seems to me that he felt very, very confident, which is why he put out that tweet. But your that call spread positions yourself not necessarily for a go private or for a lot of downside at this point. Right. What I You're put on, I'll tell you what, I went yeah. out to November and basically it's a three, I believe it's a 380 by 420. 
something okay. like that, call spread. So that gives me an opportunity. Anything yeah. that leads me to believe anywhere that he made that tweet out of confidence. If anything, right. it made 100%. it out of sheer like panic. And it seems like the board agrees with that. It seems like the press agrees with that. It, you know, so to me, I actually think panic. But what the idea? Yeah. Okay, so here's the question: If yeah. you were to put on a trade yeah. on Tesla, would you put a trade that would position yourself for downside? Really. The I think the stock's stock range I mean, like, right, if you think about it, it was trading at, what, 280 or something yeah. like that yeah. three months ago. Okay. Yeah. Coming up, NVIDIA shares are surging heading into earnings this week, but there's another chip stock one top technician says is about to rip higher. He will give us a name and the trade. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. That's a live look at what crypto investors are doing right now. And the former CEO of PayPal says the pain is about to get a lot worse. Plus, Fang's bark may be getting bigger than its bite. We'll tell you why the smart money is bailing on the tech darlings. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The semis have been on a tear, and the spotlight is on the group as two big names gear up to report earnings. Let's get to Dom Chu in the newsroom for more. Hey, Dom. Well, Melissa, chips are the name and momentum is the game. Those semiconductor stocks have been in a leadership position for a good part of the market the past few years. They're still run, outrunning, rather, the rest of the market, but not really outrunning the technology sector itself. The VanEck Vectors Semiconductor ETF, that ticker SMH, is up around 8% year-to-date. That beats the S&P 500 6% gain, but it falls short of the Spider Technology ETF, that ticker XLK, which is posting a gain of over 14%. Some of the best-performing semiconductor stocks in the S&P so far this year include memory chip maker Micron, up around 23% this year. Mobile chip maker Corvo is up around 24%. NVIDIA, always a hot stock up there, is up 35%. And advanced micro devices, the best-performing stock in the S&P 500 tech sector, up nearly double, 95% so far year-to-date. Now, the next big catalyst for the industry could come via NVIDIA. It's already having a positive day today on the heels of their rollout of their next big graphics processor in their lineup. This is the eighth generation Turing processor. NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang says it's the most important innovation in computer graphics in more than a decade. We're going to get more market moving news on Thursday after the closing bell. That's when NVIDIA reports its earnings. And Melissa, it could be a big driver of that semi story in the coming days and weeks. Back over to you. All right. Thanks, Dom. Dom Chu. Our next guest says there are two chip stocks to buy right now. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone, a strategist research partners. Hey, Chris. Hey, Melissa. How are you? And exactly. And we'll start with AMD. And frankly, this has been a very good leadership stock recently. But let's put in context where it's come from. AMD was essentially dead money for about two and a half years, between $9 and 17. It broke above that important 17 level really about eight weeks ago. We think there's more to go here. Looking for 25 on AMD. It's been a leadership stock relative to the S&P as well. Always important uh, in our work. I think there's one that's also getting better here. This is Taiwan Semi. Obviously a very big, important global weight. Second largest weight uh, in the stocks. Quietly starting to improve in relative terms versus the S&P. That's a three-month relative high. I think what's important here is we hold that 50-day moving average near 39. If this is getting better and on its way back to 45, must hold uh, support near 39. Now, they're all not good. We think Skyworks is vulnerable here. Looks like a really big top formation to us. Tried to get above 115 three times. Couldn't do it here. Couldn't do it here. Can't do it here. 
Now another little top formation rolling over. We think ultimately down to 80. Stock trade is 92 today, and it's already breaking down in relative terms. So not a leader, one of the weaker ones. Focus on Taiwan Semi and AMD. All right, Chris. Uh, Chris comes over, I think. I'm not yeah. going to bother asking because oh, it's like clear. That. I mean, I mean, Mike Wilson's talking negative. This guy's talking about the spear kind yeah, of right? stuff, right? Good thing. All right. So um, I will pick up on what Mike Wilson said about semiconductors and what they indicate about the broader economy and the markets. He said this is the tip of the spear. It's the ultimate cyclical read on future orders, et cetera. Do you find that? Is that borne out by the charts? I'm a little skeptical of that view. And Mike's a great analyst. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical uh, of that view. I think this has been such a unique business cycle. I'm not sure one sector or one group really gives us a read about anything other than that one sector or one group. And when we look within the semis right now, it's a very diverse group. There are good ones. AMD's been fantastic. We think it's getting better here. Taiwan Semi seems to be improving. Some weaker ones, Skyworks, maybe Corvo a little weaker now. So it's a very bifurcated group. Focus on what the relative leaders are within the semis. So on a relative basis, though, the SMH, the ETF that tracks the, the SOX, it looks like that Skyworks chart. It looks like it's rolling over. And we already talked a little bit earlier about Intel. The market cap leader is down 16%. So to me, we're picking up AMD. That's a $20 billion market cap stock that's up 100%. But I don't see a whole heck of a lot of leadership other than NVIDIA. So let's be a little bit careful with how some of these indices are constructed. Obviously, Intel, the largest weight in that group. Qualcomm, a relatively large weight as well. So I think when we talk about a group like semis or discretionary or tech, we need to think about these things equally weighted. And equally weighted, semis are actually a lot stronger than the cap-weighted construction. That's true for a lot of groups right now. I mean, there's the story out there that market breadth has really narrowed. We actually reject that story. When you look at these groups equally weighted, they're a lot better uh, than the cap-weighted charts might suggest. So 10% correction on the markets was Mike's call. I don't want to put you in a position of, Mike said this, what do you think, Chris? But I mean, you are the technician, sure. so people would want to know, do the charts show anything, weakness, chance of a breakdown? I recognize where we are with the calendar here. It's the middle of August. We have 60 days of uncomfortableness uh, in front of us. But let's keep one thing in perspective. They've thrown every headline at this market, and they can't take it down. I think that means something here. I want to respect the resiliency of the tape in what is otherwise a weak seasonal period. The headlines haven't seemed to matter here. Let's respect it. All right. Chris, thanks. Thank you. Chris Aron of Strategus. Yeah. What do you think of semis? Well, so I'm, I'm long NVIDIA, I'm long Taiwan Semi. The thing that I like particularly about Taiwan Semi is that they have the new 7 nanometer chip coming out. And I like it not just because of the crypto demand, but there's demand from multiple other players. So even if I'm wrong on one of those levels, one of those levers, then I'm going to be perhaps right someplace else. So there's a lot of demand for a new product. So for me, the place Taiwan Semi. All right, coming up. It is a cruel, cruel summer for crypto as Bitcoin has plummeted 20% in just August alone. The whole universe now worth less than $200 billion. And the former CEO of PayPal, who's been pounding the table calling Bitcoin a scam, says it is heading straight to zero. You'll hear his case as our special crypto and turmoil coverage is coming up next. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to
to Fast Money. It is a sad day for the crypto universe. All of the major coins getting absolutely hammered today after Bitcoin plunged below 6,000 for the first time since June. When the markets are in turmoil, CNBC runs a special coverage called Markets in Turmoil, as you know. <laughs> but today it is crypto that's in serious turmoil. So we got some inspiration for a new look. Check it out. Crypto in turmoil. Inspired by one of our Twitter fans, by the way. Very intense, right? Let's get to Seema Modi at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Hey, Seema. Hey, Melissa, and that's right. The sell-off has been intense. Bitcoin breaking below $6,000 for the second time this year. And other cryptocurrencies like Ether, Ripple, Litecoin are all down near double digits today, resulting in the total market cap of cryptocurrencies to fall below $200 billion. That's the first time since November of 2017. What's behind the sell-off? Well, a couple factors. ARCA Fund says investor confidence has been falling ever since the SEC delayed its decision on a Bitcoin ETF to late September. It followed the rejection of a separate ETF proposal from the Winklevoss twins. Meantime, some of the ICOs that came to market this year were built on Ethereum and subsequently funded with Ether tokens. Out of desperation, those traders have had to sell their tokens for U.S. dollars to cover their expenses. It's worth noting that of the major digital currencies, Ether is faring the worst. Back to Bitcoin, the levels to watch there, according to technicians, 57.85. That's the low that Bitcoin hit back on June 18th. Melissa. All right, Seema, thank you so much. Seema Modi at the NYSE. It's pretty ugly out there. I mean, crypto is is in turmoil. It is. Brian and, Kelly. You know, the contrarian me loves crypto in turmoil, markets in turmoil. That's when I want to look for a trading signal that maybe we bought them. So, yeah, keep showing that. Keep showing that all day long. <laughs> I, I'm a buyer of that all day long. But the one thing that I wanted to point out, what we've seen, which is what we saw back in April, you've seen a huge increase in short interest. And you, there are ways to short Bitcoin at this point in time. You've seen an increase in short interest up to the points that we saw last April. And this chart here shows you what happened when that short squeeze came along. You had a 50% increase from the middle of April to the middle of May. So I don't know if I'd necessarily be selling this market very hard here. In fact, I think as a trader, there's an opportunity to be buying it. Have you been? Yes. You have been? Yes, I have been. Which ones? Uh, I've actually been buying across the board. I mean, Bitcoin uh, is probably probably the biggest position at this point in time. That seems to be the market leader. It seems to have the most use cases. That being said, understand this is a risk reward type of thing. So you have that 57.85 level. If we start, we break down below that, then BK will likely be out. All right. Well, back in April, the former CEO of PayPal came out swinging against the crypto universe, calling Bitcoin "quote unquote." The greatest scam in history, adding that it's a pump and dump scheme like anything the world has ever seen. You might remember he appeared on our show to discuss that. Now he's back with an even bolder call, saying Bitcoin is headed straight to zero. Let's bring in Bill Harris, a former PayPal CEO. Bill, welcome. Good Thank to see you. you in person. Thanks. You know, I'm, I'm delighted that you like buying into weakness because I think you'll have a lot of opportunity to do that. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, there you go. We'll see. The market will tell us. So what's different this time in terms of your call? Before you were skeptical, you said it was a scam. Now you're saying it's, it's, it is going to go to zero. Well, first, first, I don't make calls. I'm not in that uh, business. And, sure. you know, I, I don't think I said it's going to zero. I said it's a whole lot. It's going to go eventually a whole lot closer to zero than a lot because there's just no value there. I mean, you can sum it up this way. Um, the cult of Bitcoin make many claims that it's instant, free, scalable, efficient, uh, secure, globally accepted, and useful. It is none of those things. 
And this is coming from the former payments right? Listen, company's Listen, pay, PayPal CEO. works great, right? I mean, the Russian hackers were able to buy all kinds of ads on Google with PayPal this year, so it works very well. And I agree with you. All your criticisms, 100% correct. But to me, as the investor, I say those are catalysts for the future. As those things improve, I mean, we're not going to stay at seven transactions per second. We're going to be able to scale this. We have to. Otherwise, it is going to go to zero, like you said. But I guess my question for you is, let's take a step back from the trading of the token, because what yes. we're really looking there is this liquid venture capital, right? And it could be worth 6000 could be worth twenty. <clears throat> but the idea that Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are a software program that allows you to disintermediate parts of financial services, do you find any value in that? No. And well, I think the problem statement is correct. For instance, one of the one of the things that people who love Bitcoin or um, uh, XRP or something like that is look at how difficult it is to get money from one country across the border to another. It's slow. It's expensive. It's all those things. Agreed. You don't need. Bitcoin, you don't need XRP, you don't need any of that to solve that problem. What you need is faster networks. Well, and in fact, and there's some there are many regulatory ways, issue with that, but people are still using it for that case. Hardly ever. I mean, I'm this, not whole, sure about this that. whole notion of globally, of broadly accepted, globally accepted, all of that, I dare you to find places where you can actually use it. There's about 200,000 places you can use it worldwide. Okay. And then you, there's also plenty of people that are using it internationally. I mean, Seagate Technology uses it to move money from their international subsidiaries to the and U.S. What percentage of the total global flows is it? Well, it's a small, it's the investment opportunity, right? If it's if it's a huge portion of the investment, if it's a huge portion of global flows, it's less interesting to me. And when so, it's old and boring, it's less interesting. And so, why in the world should people use it? What's the advantage? The advantage, well, in the U.S., we don't really have a broken financial system. But if you're in a country that does have a broken financial system, that's certainly the advantage. There are other, it could be the Internet of Money if you're going across border. That's one way to use it. I mean, there's multiple I'll actually cases. point out that other major, the, the, the largest um, uh, industries out there, the, sorry, the largest countries out there, China, now India, they have much better real-time payment systems than we do in the U.S. So does the EU, so does the U.K. Um, I mean, it's not like we've got something function and the rest of the world doesn't. No, actually, they're ahead of us. Okay. Have a huge but that doesn't, like mean that, this, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin doesn't have a use case and goes to zero. I mean, nobody uses gold anymore and it's worth $1,200 an ounce as well. So, I mean, and there's more to this than, than just this payment system globally, right? I mean, this is, a, this is a way that you can have digital goods go from one place to the other. I mean, when, when they started at Amazon, nobody thought that you'd be streaming movies to a handheld computer. It was an online bookstore. We've got digital currencies, and we've got digital currencies that are more stable, more widely accepted, and have intrinsic value. Uh, we've already got them. It's called the dollar, the yen, uh, you name it. Uh, there's, there's really... Um, it's, it's, as you say, not scalable. I mean, seven transactions per second. Well, I didn't say it wasn't second. scalable. You, you said seven transactions per second, which But I didn't is. say it wasn't scalable. Well, They're working on scaling solutions. Fine, they're working on that. Well, seven transactions per second. Transaction per second. Visa does 50,000. Alipay does 250,000 okay, per second. there's coins out there now that will do 10,000 and 20,000. I mean, it's, it, this is the investment opportunity. I'm surprised, coming from well, Silicon Valley, that you're not seeing the investment opportunity. Yes, I believe there's a heck of a lot of investment opportunity within financial technology. I've been doing financial technology for 20, 25 years. Right. But what we do is we build things that are useful, that are better than the alternatives. And I see absolutely no reason why Bitcoin is useful. I mean, listen, it, its volatility alone makes it 
useless as a payment mechanism and ridiculous as a store of value. But again, I'll go back to that's the investment opportunity. If you look at other, you look at oil, okay? Yeah. Oil's speculation to use case is about 96 to 1. Bitcoin's speculation to use case is 2.5 to 1. So as that speculation increases, the volatility will decrease just like every commodity, just like every currency out there. And again, it goes back to as an investor, it's going to be less interesting I, when it's less I'm volatile. Gonna, I'm going to blow my figurative whistle at this point because it's <laughs> yeah. been a great debate, but I want to bring some of the trade. Yeah, mean, I just have questions. one question. When yeah. you think about Bitcoin, it is a use case for blockchain technology. Amazon.com, from its highs in 1999 to its lows in 2002, lost... 95% of its equity value. Investors were voting that there was no useful, uh, you know, intent for this business model that at that point sold DVDs and books and that sort of thing. Now, obviously, and this is kind of making BK's point in a way, that's changed. It's one of the most valuable companies in the world. So it was just a use case for the Internet. The token that was trading on the NASDAQ went to zero, right? But that obviously changed over the last 20 years. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, listen, uh, a lot of things have increased dramatically in value. That doesn't mean that everything is going to dr increase dramatically in value. There has to be something underpinning it. Yeah, but Bitcoin makes no revenue, no profitability. I mean, there's, you know, why in the world should be a, of something of value? People were saying this about Bezos and, and Amazon and this dream that he dreamt up right. about e-commerce. I mean, I'm, I'm, just saying, I'm, but it seems I'm not of, saying yeah. there aren't some fabulous visions in the world that should be funded, will be hugely valuable, and have staying power and legs. But you can point to use cases. And why they are competitively superior to the alternative, in, in Bitcoin's case, I can't come up with a single one, with the exception of crim criminal activity. All right, we're going to leave it there. It's been a great discussion. Uh, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. Thank you. We hope to see you again. Bill Harris, the former CEO of PayPal, and of course, from Brian Kelly in the, in the bull corner here. I feel like we need to vote on this or something like that. You know, like we need the, the black No, it's, no, it's there, rigged. But He's got all his friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would say, I mean, Bill makes a very good point in that the crypto community does have to come out with that killer app. I mean, yes, Bitcoin can be an alternative currency and it has some uses, but we do need to build things that people are going to use that are better, faster, and cheaper than everything else. I, I think that the, the point that you make, which is what a lot of Bitcoin bulls bring up, is that it, the comparisons to the internet and comparing it to an Amazon, et cetera. I mean, Bill makes the point. The problem is that Bitcoin itself doesn't make any money. Amazon doesn't make any money either, but actually has, <laughs> but actually does something and sells some sort of yeah, service. No, it I, does. I, I mean, I, I'm just. You, listen, you were in like eighth grade back in 1998 or something like that. But people thought <laughs> Bezos was a, was a, a shuckster. You, you know, he was selling something that nobody wanted. Barnes and Nobles was a great solution. Why would you order something on Amazon.com when you go to your bookstore and you feel it and touch it? And that's not too different of the argument about digital store of value right. versus gold, which nobody uses, nobody transacts in, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of comparisons here. I think Bill makes a lot of great points. I don't know nearly as much about it as these two guys here, but I find it an interesting intellectual argument. All right. Coming up, <laughs> where is the smart money going? Not Fang, apparently. Should you follow the hedges out of big tech? We'll break down all the moves next. Plus, Chinese internet stocks falling sharply today, but are these babies just getting thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak? We've got the details. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some of the biggest hedge funds revealing what is exactly inside their portfolio. And it looks like smart money is getting out of one big group of stocks in particular, 
the beloved bang names. Leslie Pickers back at headquarters to break it down for us. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. Beloved for some, but not for all. Greenlight paired back its stake in Apple by almost half a billion shares to hold just 142,000 of them at quarter end. The firm made some bearish moves in the tech sector overall, selling some of Micron technology as well as Twitter. Third Point dissolved its 575,000 shares of Alphabet, the parent company for Google, and Elliott Management added a new put position on Apple, although it's unclear whether that's really a view on Apple or simply a hedge. Well, not a fang per se. Co2 management sold a significant stake in Snap during the quarter, about 20 million shares, which would have been worth about $270 million at recent prices. To be sure, though, not all hedge funds and funds were bearish. Jana added a new position in Facebook, about 651,000 shares as the data privacy scandal continued to ensnare the social media giant. It also took a smaller stake in Alphabet. And Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway continues to add to Apple in the quarter. The firm upped its stake by more than 5% to own 252 million shares. That equates to a stake of more than $50 billion in the new now trillion-dollar company. Note that all these numbers are as of June 30th and may have changed in the six weeks since. Melissa. All right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker back at headquarters. Berkshire Hathaway upping its Apple exposure. You agree with that? Absolutely. I, I, I think it makes total sense. I think he's bought into the right idea. He's seeing the growth in, in, in wearables. He's seeing it in services. And I absolutely would, would my gut tells me Elliot's buying puts to protect a position. I don't think it's negative. She, she had talked about that as well. Yeah. To me, it makes a lot of sense. Why not? Volatility is extremely low right now. The implied volatility in Apple, yeah. buy protection, own it, and that's a great trade. Facebook. Good Facebook, yeah. I mean, I think Facebook and Google are two names that I love and I continue to like, and I would I would add to it. So I agree with that. And Snapchat and Twitter are two names that I would sell aggressively here. So kind of lines up the ducks for me a little bit with these guys. Oh, I don't have any ducks or anything. Oh, uh, a couple gooses, but I actually like the idea. <laughs> you mean geese? Um, geeses. <laughs> it geese? No, gooses. It's geese. Uh, whatever. Geese. Uh, I get your point. Oh, uh, what was the point? Anyway, so <laughs> the one the one trade I do like actually is that hedge. Exactly what Pete said on Apple being overall somewhat cautious on the macro picture here. Why not put some protection on that at the very least? Yeah, and I'll make a little foie gras over here with oh, that. Oh, well played. Um, no, I mean, listen, oh, really? the Facebook is really interesting. It had a really big bounce off of those lows. Um, you know, I think, I said this in April, I think a new high is going to be really hard to come by. It did make a new high. I think the difference now is that we are seeing investors think about this as a much bigger secular shift at, rather than a single stock story. I would have liked to see the stock test 150 where it went back in March. It never did. So I think it's kind of in no man's land for a bit here. The tough Facebook. thing about these filings is where did they buy Facebook? Right. Not to, I yeah, know we we're running know. out of time, but I mean, that's the, the difficult part. Did they buy now. it high at the 200 level or did they buy it down in the 155? level that we don't know. All right, coming up. Chinese tech stocks are having a rough month, but one of our traders is betting on a turnaround in one name. He will tell us what that is. And before we head to break, let's check on our Kramer cam. Can you see there Jim talking to the Tapestry CEO? All smiles there. The stock was on a tear today after the retail blew out its earnings report. That interview at the top of the hour. And stick around. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more fast money right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the Chinese tech stocks tanking today. The group has been under pressure with the rest of China's market. Uh, impact of the escalating trade war concerns about tariffs uh, with the U.S. Just in the past month, shares of Chinese Internet company Sina have fallen more than 16 percent. Shares of JD.com down 12 percent. Tencent Alibaba also down 9 percent. Uh, and, Dan, there was some action in Alibaba today. We should know there are a couple of earnings reports that came out in this sector that were very disappointing. That, that led to this downdraft today, at least. Yeah, and interesting in Alibaba, which is obviously the biggest one, um, obviously here listed in uh, New York, um, you know, call volume was two times that of put. And there was one trade that really caught my eye because it was really one of the few that appeared to be directional in Alibaba when the stock was trading at 172.70. A trader rolled some calls down, sold to close uh, 1,500 of the September uh, 185 calls and bought to open 1,500 of the uh, September 170 five calls paying 772 for those the net spread on that was about 372 it breaks up uh, breaks even uh, a bit higher here what's interesting about this is we have a couple charts look at Alibaba it's down 18 and a half percent from the all-time highs made just a couple of months ago um, and it's approaching that really key support level going back about a year to about 165 that might be one reason why you'd want to define your risk playing for a bounce we have a chart from 2014 from its IPO and what's interesting on a log basis here it just broke that uptrend from the 2016 lows and like as Pete or these guys were saying earlier when volatility is actually cheap it makes sense to define your risk if you're looking to make a somewhat contrarian bet or put on some protection those technical levels are troubling the price action is troubling but it's important to remember that Alibaba has bounced off this level numerous times this year all right for more options action check out the full show that's Friday 5 30 p.m. Eastern time up next final trades Okay, so you watched the debate between our crypto baller and former PayPal CEO Bill Harris. We asked you on Twitter to weigh in. Is Bitcoin going to the moon or going to zero? See where we stand right now. It looks like more of you out there still think Bitcoin is going to the moon, 54%. But the vote is still on. You can cast it now on our Twitter handle, at uh, CNBC Fast Money. So go and vote. Time for the final trade, Pete. I'm going to go with PayPal. Bill, I think, made a lot of really good points. He knows this space, FinTech. PayPal's going higher. Uh, 32. I'm taking profits in Walmart here ahead of earnings. A little pop here in retail is a sold for Walmart. Speakers. Looking for another breakout check. The oil sector, COP. Oh. Dan. Uh, yeah, SMH, dip of the spirit going lower. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow again at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Bad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.